You're listening to Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest today is Matt Dembiski. That's right. I got it right. <laughs> it's uh, an unusual spelling. Uh, I don't know. Not unusual. It's unusual. Oh, it threw I, me off. It's Polish. So. It's Polish. Um, your two books, Mr. Big, the one you did by yourself, or with your uh, with your lady. My woman. Your woman. Uh, and the anthology that just came out. When did it come out? Pretty recent? Uh, it came out officially in June. Okay. Uh, Trickster, uh, Native American Tales, a graphic collection. Um, so I guess you wear two hats, cartoonist and editor. Yes. Yes. Um, in the back of Mr. Big, you mentioned kind of leaving comics for quite a while and coming back later. What was your uh, earlier interest in comics as a young man? Oh, well, uh, it's actually my mother who got me into reading comics. Uh, both my parents were uh, Polish immigrants, and um, they wanted to find a way to encourage me to speak more English and read more English, because in our household, it just people spoke Polish and mm-hmm. read Polish. And so she read in the newspaper, this is, a, in the, um, this is about uh, 19... 1980 or so, 1981, and she read it in the newspaper about how some schools were using comics in the classroom to encourage kids to read. And so she decided she was going to give it a shot and went out and she bought a bunch of comics. And they, they happened to be uh, the, the more popular titles at the time. This is when Frank Miller was doing Daredevil, uh, <laughs> X-Men, a couple Marvel 2 and ones things like that. And uh, that kind of got me hooked onto it. And so uh, my early experiences reading a lot of superhero comics, a lot of mostly Marvel comics at the time. Uh, but as I got a little older, I kind of transitioned into some of the DC comics, a lot of Swamp Thing, things like that. Mm-hmm. The horror line. Yeah, I, I just kind of got into it. It was really interesting. I was really into Stephen Bissett. And, and then I went to college, and I completely lost interest in comics. What did you take in college? Uh, actually, I was going to major in... A, in architecture, um, but that was like a horrible career decision because uh, that was uh, during uh, an economic downturn and no one was building anything. So at that time I decided, I, was, I wasn't sure what I was going to do, so I, I needed to do something, so I kind of uh, did a little writing for the uh, campus newspaper, and I kind of got hooked on, uh, on journalism, so I studied journalism in college. Um, with Mr. Big... Um your kind of focus is on environmental issues. Was journal that a particular focus for you at that time as a younger man, too? When I was in college? Yeah. Uh, not really. You know, um, I can't say it was a focus back then. Mostly back then it was uh, kind of politics and things like that. I did some editorial cartooning also, but that was about it. It wasn't until um, I was a little bit older that I kind of got into more of the... Uh, the uh, environmental stuff. So why the choice to jump back into comics? Actually, uh, that, was, that was my wife's fault. Um, when I met her, this is about, uh, I think it was about 10 years ago now or so, um, on our first date, she mentioned at the time that she was reading Sandman. And uh, I jumped out of comics right before Sandman kind of came out. So that kind of piqued my interest in comics again. And uh, I kind of went back and I got my you know, bought some trades of, of the Swamp Thing. I started reading them, and, and I decided, you know, this is really cool stuff. I, I really miss this stuff, and I kind of want to get back into it. 
And, you know, when I was younger in high school, I did a bunch of mini-comics and stuff like that. So I definitely wanted to kind of dabble again in comics. and start. So I started doing that. That kind of got me uh, going, and I've been kind of just moving on since then. So it's it's been about, I've been back in comics, or mini-comics mostly, for about uh, about eight years now or so. Okay. So you've done some of the conventions? Yeah, you know, I, I stick mostly uh, to uh, SPX. Mm-hmm. Um Space, which is the small uh, small press show in, uh, in Columbus, Ohio, and I do a lot of uh, Zine Fest shows, like in Philly and Richmond and in Baltimore. Uh, that's kind of where my stuff tends to sell the best. What was the particular interest in um, the kind of issues you touch on in Mister Big? Um, well, you know, actually, what kind of got the whole thing started was there's a pond near our house, and um, kind of in the, in the woods in the back, and my wife and I went there one day, we used to kind of frequently, frequently go to the woods and just for a little hike, and we saw this huge turtle, and, and it was a snapping turtle, and my, I think it was my wife that said, wow, it'd be kind of cool to do a story revolving, revolving around this, uh, this animal that, that kind of dominates this pond, and at the time also, um, uh, there was, in D.C., there was a lot of uh, concern about people dumping the the snake the Chinese snakehead fish into the into the fresh waters mm-hmm. and so that kind of dovetailed very nicely into kind of an ecological tale because uh, it, since then it's kind of died down but at, at the time there was uh, a lot of concern that people uh, pet owners and actually I think some uh, um, Asian restaurants were buying these fish and, and using them you know for uh, for their menus and there were they were dumping the ones that they didn't use into ponds and, and into the Potomac River and stuff like that. So there's a big concern that these animals would kind of just uh, cause a, a disbalance uh, in the ecosystem. Uh, and from then on, it, it just kind of like, you know, all of a sudden it became kind of ingrained in my brain. So I have a very kind of ecological focus now in a lot of the comics <laughs> I do. So what kind of research did you jump into? Uh, well... You know, a lot of uh, looking into what the snakehead fish was, a lot of looking into um, the um, uh, snapping turtles themselves, you know, what their diet consists of, what their kind of uh, daily routine is like, you know, what they eat, what they get angry about, you know, how they look, things like that. And uh, so, you know, and I, I talked to a lot of uh, folks at the National Zoo to kind of get their input into uh, into how that would work. and. It's kind of trans uh, uh, transferred over to. I'm doing a new book called Shock, and it's about a great white. And so a lot of that kind of research skills I've been able to kind of transfer over into into this project as well. So mm-hmm. uh, it kind of set up a, a kind of a template that I use into you know how I approach uh, the writing and research of a book.
So from there, you've done the um, kind of the bigger bulk of your work is the Trickster anthology, and I'm curious, um, kind of what was the idea behind putting together uh, this collection of um, North? It's not North American because I know you also have Hawaiian in there too. So kind of specifically indigenous folklore tales, I guess. Right. Um, well, actually, the way it kind of came about was um, you know, I've always had an interest in mythology and folklore and things like that. And um, and uh, I came, I was reading one of uh, Ken Kesey's uh, kids' books about a trickster, trickster rabbit. I don't remember the whole name, but it was Trickster Rabbit. And um, I kind of got interested into, into trickster trickster creatures. Mm-hmm. And uh, one time I was at the local library and you know, kind of walking by one of the uh, one of the um, shelves and I, I noticed uh, this, this section on uh, tricksters and I picked up this really awesome anthology, a uh, prose anthology on tricksters and uh, I started to read it and, and they had these great little spot illustrations and I started to think, wow, these would be kind of really kind of cool comic stories. Initially, I, I just wanted to kind of do a drawing exercise for my own self using different styles to illustrate each of the stories. Mm-hmm. But I was, as I was kind of doing that, I, I began to think, like, wow, this could be a really neat anthology on its own if I got the, you know, the right artists aboard. And, and to make it really special, you know, I should, it would be really cool if I can contact the Native American storytellers to get them to contribute their stories based on their particular tribes. Um, and, it, you know, once you kind of got into it, I got really excited about it because you had these people who weren't necessarily um, uh, knowledgeable about comics, you know, their knowledge of comics is pretty much Superman, Batman, Spider-Man kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so one of the, some of the interesting things that kind of happened out of that was um, I had a couple of the uh, storytellers tell me that they were interested in doing it, but they weren't sure if their tribal elders would, would kind of approve because of the stereotype of comics. And the way this kind of turned out was they came back about a week later and said, you know, Matt, they're into it. You know, which was really kind of cool, and I asked, "Well, why did you? Why did they kind of decide to go with it?" And they said, "Well, you know, the Native American story uh, telling tradition is is it's an oral st- storytelling tradition, and um, it's kind of dying out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the younger generation don't know the stories or aren't listen aren't interested in listening to it. So anything that we can do to reach, you know, to keep the stories alive, you know, with." Americans, uh, Native Americans, and, and non-Native Americans, you know, we'll give it a shot. Even if it's comics, you know, we're reaching a different audience. So, you know, kids these days are very visually oriented. So whatever we can do, it's it's not the ideal format for the types of stories we do, but we realize that it is it is a vehicle that we can use to kind of reach a, a new audience and keep these stories alive. That was one thing that struck out to me is, yeah, it does feel like it needs to be adjusted. The stories need to be adjusted towards the medium of which they told through mm-hmm. um, and that's interesting is the idea of uh, how the folks feel the images represent the stories themselves right and um, you know the one one thing you know I was very conscious of, of making sure that the storytellers were happy with the way the stories were going to be illustrated I didn't want this to necessarily be kind of a or give me your story, and I'll give it to uh, an animator who's going to do it in typical Disney style or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so you know, during during the whole process, I made sure that first of all, I when the stories came in, I read them over and I um, decided on you know what three or four artists I think would do a great job with the story. 
and I provided, uh, I made sure there was kind of a cartoony style all the way to kind of a more realistic style. And I sent samples to storytellers. And based on those samples, they selected who they would like to work with on the story. And from that point on, the, usually the, the storyteller or the artist would send back um, some character sketches and then some of the thumbnail sketches to make sure that the, uh, the writers are kind of happy with the way things were kind of going. You know, that kind of helped get more buy-in behind the project as well to make sure they were comfortable with it. It, it's, it is really neat to see just how, knowing that there was kind of input towards the artistic process, just how varied the styles are yeah. <laughs> on top of that. Yeah, and that's just, that's just the way it kind of worked out, you know. It, it's just like, I think that, you know, from my perspective, I like to see different styles, you know, writing styles, different art styles in an anthology, Mm-hmm. And um, you know, sometimes editors might have a particular bias where you see more of one style than another. But here, that worked out perfectly, and I, you know, just in the full faith of of the way the uh, storytellers selected the, what kind of style they wanted to work with, and so you got that nice broad array of of different uh, techniques and styles and, and whatnot. Why is a trickster uh, particularly important? I think every every culture has some type of trickster being. Um, uh, I think you know, you, most of us know the the European trickster stories, uh, but but in the in the United States, uh, I think most people are familiar with coyote and rabbit as tricksters, mm-hmm. and I think that's just purely based on the Warner Brother cartoon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's just the way it is. That's what they grew up with. They're like, oh yeah, Bugs Bunny, he's a trickster. Oh, you coyote, you know, he he always you know he gets what's coming to him. But you know, what he's a failed a, trickster. <laughs> but uh, you know, it, and it's it's a way to kind of convey a lesson about life. You know, morality. Sometimes uh, trickster stories are used to explain origin of, of things. You know, origin of maybe geographic um, shapes and islands and things like that. And so you know, it, it's just a vehicle to ex- to explain or to convey a message. I think, and every culture has it. Um, but, you know, I just didn't see a lot of stuff out there in regards to uh, the American tricksters, and particularly in the comic format. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found that really appealing, you know, something that hadn't been done before, you know, something that could really kind of be uh, a very, have a very unique place in comicdom. I'm curious um, how broad your focus was of um, communities for getting storytellers from. Uh, what do you mean? Well, like you mentioned, United States, yeah. uh, indigenous people. Um, but, you know, you have Hawaiian in there. Was it specifically going to, to kind of function into this kind of idea of American roots? Or did you have some Canadian stuff as well? Well, I, uh, initially I was going to include some Canadian um, storytellers and even some Mexican storytellers. Uh, but I found that that was beginning to be cumbersome uh, just to contact them and you know there were some uh, I was concerned about some legal issues as well you know here in the United States I'm comfortable with what you know what the laws are you know what the what the issues are particularly with the with uh, with tribes in the US you know I wasn't so familiar with issues and legalities in Canada and Mexico and that's not someplace I wanted to go if I didn't know what I was getting myself into how what do you mean by that? Because I don't know if I, I don't necessarily get what you mean by legalities. 
Well, you know, for example, there there were a couple instances where I would contact people in Canada, and they would cite some kind of legal dispute going around uh, between uh, a government agency and a particular tribe, and you know, mentioning that you know if I did something regarding a particular tribe or 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 anything like that, that you know I could be subject to a lawsuit or something like that. And it got to a point that I just thought to myself, you know, I really don't need the <laughs> headache, you know what I mean? This is yeah. not my full-time job, and, uh, you know, I, I'm just going to stick to to the parameters that I, that I know and I'm comfortable with, you know. And even in those situations, it wasn't necessarily easy to get people aboard, you know. I did have a, a number of people tell me, like, you know, what right that I have as a, as a non-Native American to try to pull this kind of book together. Mm-hmm. And um, one interesting story was there's this uh, university um, that had a Native American literature program or a Native American studies program. And the woman um, asked me, you know, she kind of laid it. I told her what I was looking for at the time. I, I called her and I you know, explained the project. And I told her I was looking for some storytellers that might be interested in the project. And if, if she knew of any, if she can just kind of ask them to call me or convey the message to me to me or something like that, and we can get a discussion going. She kind of laid into me, like, what right do I have to do this? The, and all this type of things. And then, you know, she, again, kind of brought up the legal issue and asked and said that, you know, you should contact this one guy, Joseph Bruchek. He's an expert in the subject, you know, and he would kind of set me straight and, you know, and I said, oh, I, I know Joseph. And she goes, well, how do you know him? And I, I told her, well, actually, I'm illustrating his story for the book. <laughs> and, <laughs> and actually, from that point on, it, it was, she just turned, you know, like a, a complete 180. It was like, oh, okay, well, well, that's great. You know, I'm sorry I kind of gave you a hard time. I had to, you know, I felt I have to vet people, you know, to make sure that they're not trying to take advantage of storytellers. And, and I kind of felt like saying, well, you could, yeah, yeah I, I completely understand that, but at least give them them the opportunity to say yes or no. You yeah. know, I felt like she was acting as kind of a filter to, uh, you know, unnecessary filter to, you know, open up an opportunity to do a unique project. Coincidentally, I don't think she was Native American <laughs> either. <laughs> and I should mention that you did bring up um, the possibility of maybe bringing in one of the storytellers to join us in the interview. Yes. And, uh, just so folks know, that was uh, something that, that Matt did bring forward, and unfortunately, because of technical and time limitations, I'm not able to do that, um, but it is something you brought up as part of this process, just to kind of have that voice at the table. Yeah, I, I think that's, from my perspective, that's the more interesting part, you know, to, to find, to, to hear from their perspective as non-comic book writers, non-comic book readers, what appealed to them about about the project. Did you have um, different people getting involved in different ways, or was everyone kind of generally jumping in, especially as far as the storytelling aspect, like, you know, scripting out and kind of seeing how the story would come out in the illustrations? Um, everyone had a different method. You know, some people would just write out the story and send it to me, and then, you know... Um, what other people actually I had uh, three or four people that actually um, dictated the story over the phone mm-hmm. recited the story to me over the phone and I transcribed it uh, and the reason is because they felt well we know the stories very well in the oral storytelling tradition yeah. and we want to tell you because they know how to do the inflections at the right point 
you know, and, and it's second nature to them. So I think they just didn't feel like it would be a, a story that was alive that they put on paper themselves. <laughs> and so, you know, what I did is I transcribed the story and I sent it back to them, and they did some slight tweaking and editing and sent it back to me. So that was that was really interesting. You Do know? you ever have a cha- a time where the artist would hear the story orally told? Um. I don't know. I know that um, a number of, uh, most of the, not most, but I would say probably half the artists and storytellers did actually talk on the phone. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that occurred. I know there were discussions about certain aspects of the story, um, but I don't think that actually happened. Okay. And But in, in, in that way, it's also interesting to, to have a storyteller think of the story one way and you know, the cartoonist think of the storyteller another way. Mm-hmm. Because you know, one thing I did kind of uh, stress with the storytellers was, you know, this is your story. We're going to try to get as accurate to your vision as possible, but you know, you got to give the artist some, you know, some creative slag a little bit. You know what I mean? Let them kind of do what they what they kind of feel with it. And I think th- I think both sides kind of appreciated that. You know that. And there were some things that you know the storytellers looked and said, "Wow, this is really cool. I didn't think of it this way, but I could see how someone could interpret it that way." And that's something interesting is how um, in storytelling things do change over time and take on different elements that may reflect different points in time. Yeah. yeah. Oral oral stories do not stay continuously exact. It's a fascinating thing. I'm, I'm always curious. Um, as a historian at school, kind of how oral histories play a role, too, and you know, yeah. Oral oral stories are a further descendant of that. Um, did you kind of have a wide berth of stories and kind of whittle them down, or was this kind of everyone that you worked with? No, um, it was really tough to get this group together. Um, some people, you know, like with any of any of the comics anthology or probably any anthology that uh, somebody works on, you kind of have a bigger pool and it kind of grows shorter. Mm-hmm. You know, I think a rule of thumb anthologies that I've kind of worked on, about 25% of the people eventually drop out for one reason or another. You know, and, and that was, it was true with this book. You know, I had some storytellers that were into it, and then you didn't hear from them again. Um, same thing with artists. You know, they're kind of into it, and they didn't, you know, all of a sudden they kind of had to back out. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, so you know, I, I had a good group of folks, and and some folks dropped out, and I was very happy with the uh, with the number of folks that we did end up with. <coughs> my my primary goal was just to make sure that we had a nice mix of uh, styles. Excuse me. Yeah, take a second. <coughs> a nice mix of uh, styles. We're not live, so if you want to get yourself a glass of water. Okay. <laughs> a nice uh, mix of uh, styles and um, stories. You know, I, like, like I said, I think everyone's familiar with Trickster and Rabbit. Um. But I wanted to to also include some of the lesser known trickster beings, um, raccoon, for example, in northeast, yeah. um, raven in the uh, northwest. Yeah. Um, you know, so and I think that I think that that was the most interesting part for me. As a, the, a lot of um, living in the northwest in Vancouver, so a lot of the raven stuff was very familiar think, to what yeah. you hear growing up in school. And that's that's the thing. I think if you're growing up in that particular region, you're like, oh yeah, I know this. But if you're not, like for myself, you know, I'm on the other <laughs> other side of the continent. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, we see ravens, and we the only time we see ravens is you know if they're on 
on the, on the road eating roadkill or something, you know? <laughs> you know? We don't have that same, you know, cultural tie to it as, as the Northwest. You know, and, and actually, I grew up in New England, but, I, you know, I didn't realize that a raccoon played such a critical trickster being yeah. in, in, the, uh, in the mythology up there. Um, tell me about, like, you mentioned a little bit about how you had some challenges kind of with some people being roadblocks, but you also had uh, folks that were really supportive. Tell me about how that kind of worked as far as networking and kind of being able to get out there. Uh, getting get the, the message initially out there or post-production? or Getting getting the storytellers. Well, initially what, what happened was uh, I would just... Uh, kind of wrote down where I could possibly reach storytellers, you know, so I called colleges and universities. Uh, I called universities with Native American uh, programs, and I kind of conveyed to them, hey, look, I'm doing this project. Um, it, it's kind of weird to tell somebody, I'm doing a, a comic book project, you know? Yeah. You kind of have to go through that really quickly to get that next sentence to kind of put it in a broader context before they hang up on you. <laughs> um but I also contacted community colleges, you know, particularly the tribal colleges, to find that there are storytellers. Um, there are also a number of uh, storytelling organizations around the country. Um, so I contacted them and, and looked for, for people who might be interested. Uh, I would go to, you know, various... Living in D.C., I'm kind of lucky to be near some of the museums that, that have contacts with various tribes, so I can kind of... I passed along the message to them, and they kind of passed it on to other um, organizations that they work with, you know, the um, writers, storytellers, you know, tribal elders, whatever I could. So mm -hmm. that in itself, that whole part took about two years. Wow. Yeah, because, you know, you, you'd email people and you'd run into dead ends and, you know, and like I mentioned before, you have people who are interested and then for one reason or another, you know, could not commit to it. Um, so that was, that was the most difficult part. Um, and then, you know, can working with the with the artists uh, was a little bit easier but getting that group together was was tough too you know most of those folks I, I kind of know personally through various shows or, or I've been kind of fans of their work it is an odd uh, diverse mix of folks <laughs> for the artist um, which I find interesting it's not really pegged down to any particular uh, style yeah. so to say Maybe flight. Flight is the closest style, I would say. <laughs> kind of that similar glossy. I'm sorry. It. I, I was trying to think of like a good, like common other style that would be similar because you have such diverse styles of artists within the book, and I guess the closest analogy would be flight. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, you, you have some like realistic painterly kind of stuff um, that uh, uh, Micah did, and then you have stuff that's very kind of cartoony like uh, Pat Lewis and everything in between mm -hmm. you know so. do you have plans in kind of doing further work like this or is this kind of uh... I think that's I think this is going to be it for anthologies for me for a <laughs> while I mean all in all this it, this project took about four years and um, we finished the book before we kind of um, really were ready for a publisher and um as as we're looking for a publisher is when the economy started to tank. This was like 2008. Yeah. And um, initially, uh, National, Ge National Geographic was going to launch uh, a comics line, a graphic novel line. 
and they were interested in that, and they were interested in, in Mr. Big, and the economy tanked, and that's the first thing they went out the window. Yep. You know, that, and their, the whole kids' book department went out the window. Um, but the editor there, I, I think she felt bad for me, so she, she had one of her um, literary agent friends kind of look at my project and kind of put out some feelers for it. Yeah. And you no know, one at that time, everyone was just freaked out. All the major book publishers were freaked out because of the economy, and they weren't buying anything. So I was kind of thinking, oh, you know, well, here we are, you know, all this work in this project, we can't find anything. So I started to kind of look myself, and I looked at some of the university press publishers, and it came across Fulcrum, which is a, a regional publisher in Denver, specializes in Native American um, um, books, like prose books, poetry, art books, mm-hmm. and also a kind of Western culture. And by Western, I mean like Denver culture, Denver politics. <laughs> they, have like, they have a book about the Denver mob and stuff like that. So it's, it's really kind of an eclectic <laughs> book. And uh, they, you know, I sent it to them, and they said, you know, this is perfect because we were looking for something a little bit different, mm-hmm. you know, that, that, uh, that deals with Native American issues, and this fits perfectly. And I'm glad I did because I'm glad that th- all this you know, the kind of the way it happened because they've invested so much in the book, you know, time and publicity that uh, it's, it's been great. It's been a great experience, you know. Uh, the one thing I would stress to folks is sometimes, you know, the biggest publisher is not necessarily the best one for your project. Yeah. It's the one that kind of gets it. Yes. Yeah. And then you said your future project is the uh, Great White Shark? Yeah, I'm, I'm finishing that up. I'm going um, uh, to have the uh, fourth book, like a little mini-comic book, ready for SPX in a couple weeks, and uh, that's about a kind of ecological tale about a great white shark's journey from the coast of California to Hawaii, and all the stuff that it encounters along the way, like man-made and natural challenges. Well, fascinating and interesting, and looking forward to uh, seeing more comics. Thank you for joining me today, Matt. Well, I I appreciate the opportunity, Coming in from London from over the pole Flying in a big airliner Chicken flying everywhere around the plane Could we ever feel much finer Coming into Los Angeles Bringing in a couple of keys Don't touch my bags if you please Mr. Customs
my bag 